this is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, if we can connect you with a local church or a discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. We are in a sermon series that is asking the question, what would Jesus do? And consistently, we can answer that with Jesus would rescue sinners like this man, a paralyzed man, in Luke chapter 5. If I could summarize Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders of that day, it would be like this. Why do you let tradition get in the way of transformation? My hope is that as you walk away today, your hearts will be centered on transformation over tradition. But the reality is not all laws are bad and not all traditions are evil. But when they become dangerous is when they get in the way of, tra- of transformation. You see, Jesus was healing and leading people to forgiveness and the relig- religious leaders were stopping him due to laws and traditions. I hope that as a church, we do not let rules and traditions get in the way of transformation. I want to look at Luke chapter 5 and, and show you this story and walk through it together with a couple other passages, ultimately to come to the conclusion that Jesus brings about transformation in the midst of religious leaders who sought out obedience to the law and tradition. So look at me with Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. On one of those days, while he was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and also from Jerusalem. And the Lord's power to heal was in him. Then, some of men, uh, Just then, some men came, carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before them. Uh, since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the roof, tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now just stop with me for a moment. I want to show you two things. I've uh, exposed uh, the meaning of this text a few times, and you can back those sermons. So we're not going to walk through this verse by verse. But I just want to show you two things from the beginning here that really pop out at us. And that's uh, that the Pharisees and these uh, teachers of the law were coming from all different areas, were crowding around this uh, some area where Jesus was about to perform a miracle. And because of it, a paralytic was trying to get to Jesus and couldn't. May we not be a people who get in the way of others trying to get to Jesus. The second thing I want you to see is what happens when Jesus faces sinners like you and I. I hope that from last week what you saw and what I saw and we were able to uh, really grasp from the text was that we too are sinners and that we never need to lead, leave that reality that Jesus came to us in our darkest season of life or prevented us from getting to that darkest season of life and that we too needed to be saved just like everyone else in this world. And so what does Jesus do when he faces the sick and the sinners? Verse 20, friend, your sins are forgiven. I want you to note this down because when Jesus is around sinners, he uses the term friend. Friend. When a sinner is dropped down in front of him, he says, friend. 
The sick is dropped down in front of him. He says, friend, now you can imagine what the Pharisees and the experts of the law and the teachers of the law would have expected in this moment. They would have, at all costs, avoided this man because he was sick and a sinner. In fact, later on I'm going to show you the term they use, which is sinner. They identify him by his works. Jesus identifies him by something else. You see, Jesus doesn't move away from him, but moves into his situation. Friend. Now, why does he call him friend? The religious leaders did not call him friend. They call him a sinner. Why does Jesus call him friend? Look at verse 20. Seeing their faith. You see, Jesus doesn't look at what he had done. He doesn't stop him in that moment as he's being lowered down from the roof and say, hold on, hold on, I know what you did. I know where you were last night. I know what you struggle with. I know the evils in your life. Let me call that out. Let me show you and expose to you everything that you are. Let me talk to you about all the sins of your life. And then he says, friend. No, he says, friend. Your sins are forgiven. Why? Because he sees faith. Not because of the evil that he saw, not because of the righteousness that he saw, not because of the good works or the bad works, but because Jesus sees faith, he says, friend. Verse 21, Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But perceiving their hearts, Jesus replied to them, Why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. When transformation comes into people's lives, they glorify God. When transformation happens in somebody's life, they, it leads them to worship. You know what did not lead them to worship? Traditions. The law. You see the Pharisees and the teachers of the law on the side, and I wonder what they would have told this man. Can you imagine what they would have told this man if he had dropped down in front of them? They wouldn't have said friend, they'd have said sinners. But what would they have told him in that moment? Get away from me, you're sick. Get away from me, your family has a history of sin. Get away from me, you're going to make me unclean, I can't go to worship. Most likely they would have gotten away from this man or done what the, the guy did last week that we talked about when he said, thank God I'm not like him, and separated himself out. Jesus leans into the situation. He gets involved in the situation when he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And what happens when somebody sees transformation over tradition? They go home glorifying God. You see, transformation leads to worship. And not just that. Look at what happens next. Verse 26. Then everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God. And they, feel, they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. When there's transformation in your life, and the world sees your life being transformed, they will give glory to God for it. You see, people aren't giving glory to God in this world because you're going around uh, speaking about law or speaking about tradition or saying, man, I think you need to come to my church. We've got contemporary worship. You need to come to my church. We've got traditional worship. You need to come to my church. We've got a pastor who preaches like this or preaches like that. Or you need to come to my church because we have these traditions in place. We, we use the CSB Bible or we, speak these, uh, we sing these kind of worship songs or, or we have this kind of dress code. You should come to my church because we uh, make sure that everybody's dressed up nice. Or all these different traditions, all these different rules and regulations... Jesus does not bring them laws and traditions. He brings them transformation. It transforms their life and then it transforms everyone else's life. If you want to change the world, 
show them transformation. Luke 6, 1-11. On a Sabbath, he passed through the grain fields. His disciples were picking heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating them. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. He even gave some to those who were with him. Then he told them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at all of them, he told them, stretch out your hand. He did, and his hand was restored. They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. When people see transformation, they worship God. When people see tradition, they become enraged. Specifically, when people see tradition being thwarted. Now, let me show you how this happens. The paralytic comes into the home. Jesus transforms his life. The crowd worships because this transformation has taken place. The Pharisees get mad. Now let me show you the next story, which again is Luke 6, what happens. Jesus comes and he transforms a man's life. His hand was shriveled up and uh, Jesus heals him from this. And the Pharisees become enraged. Why? Because they don't give glory to God when transformation happens. They give glory to themselves when the people obey their traditions and rules. Rather, they get enraged when transformation happens. Now here's the thing. They're not mad because healing took place. Do y'all see that? They're not angry because the healing took place. They're angry because the healing took place on the Sabbath. So what did they miss here? Because honestly, there's nothing wrong with the Sabbath. I mean, many of us could say that there's nothing evil about the laws that we speak to the culture. There's nothing evil about the traditions that we have within the church. But pause there for a moment and ask this question. Is there something inherently wrong with the Sabbath? No. You see, the Sabbath was created so that we might have rest. The way that Jesus said was, the Sabbath was created for man to enjoy. Man was not created for the Sabbath. Man was not created to be obedient to the Sabbath, but rather that the Sabbath, this day, would be a a blessing to man to find rest. And so why would Jesus heal on the Sabbath? Because the gospel brings true rest. The Sabbath was created for man to find rest, but because the Pharisees and teachers of the law made it obedience and rules rather than rest, Jesus comes and shows them what rest truly looks like. He comes to bring life, rest, and for eternal rest, not just for temporary rest. So why do the religious leaders get angry? Because they want to be people to be obedient to the Sabbath rather than to find rest. You see, Jesus clarifies this for us. Luke 14, 1 through 6. One Sabbath, when he went in to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. 
He took the man, healed him, and sent him away. And to them he said, Which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? They could find no answer to these things. You see, Jesus could have told this man, Just wait a couple more hours. Wait till sunset and Sabbath is over, and then I'll heal you. But Jesus heals him on the Sabbath. Why? Because he's showing him that like a son and an ox, Jesus is the creator of the universe who created you and me to be his sons and daughters. And on Sabbath and every other day of the week, Jesus is going to save you and bring you to eternal life and rest in him. That's what the gospel is promising. And Jesus won't let the Sabbath, which was created for rest, get in the way of the gospel, which brings eternal rest. You see, Jesus sees what the Pharisees don't see. The, the Pharisees think that Sabbath is about obedience. Jesus sees that Sabbath is about rest. And because he knows that he's the only one who can bring eternal rest, then he's actually fulfilling what the Sabbath is promising. So brothers and sisters in Christ, the church that gathers here in this building, we have to recognize and look at every tradition and law we put in place and ask the question, what was it for? And if it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, being able to proclaim to people, look, you can find that in Jesus. You can find the fulfillment of that in Jesus. And we've got to stop putting rules and regulations and traditions in front of transformation. Again, I wonder what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of their day, these experts in the law, would have said to this man with a shriveled hand. Go away, unclean. Don't be near me, sinner. And what does Jesus do? He heals them. He heals those who are broken. Look at Matthew 15, 1-3 with me. It'll be on the screen. Then Jesus was approached by Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem who asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands before they eat. He answered them, Why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? <laughs> Y'all with me on this one? Like Jesus does not play around. I want us to see in this series how Jesus interacts with perceived saints, sinners, and the sick. And so I'm just showing you specifically today how he interacts with the perceived saints in front of sinners and the sick. And this is how he interacts with them. He comes to them boldly and corrects their immoral, wrong theology. They say, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Which, in all respects, was a good thing. Right? We wash our hands before we eat, hopefully. The reason they did it was because they were protecting the people. They didn't want to get disease, they didn't want to get sickness, and they don't want to spread it around. So what do they do? They wash their hands because they found out that if you wash your hands, you're less likely to get sick from somebody else, right? So oftentimes we do this in America as well. We encourage that. You're supposed to wash for like 30 seconds or something like that. This is not supposed to be something considered immoral or wrong. So why does Jesus confront them? Because they were more concerned with what was on the outside than what was on the inside. And so Jesus confronts them right where they are. You see Jesus leaning into the sinners and saying, friend, your sins are forgiven. He leans into the saints and says, brother, you missed it. Why do you break God's commandment? Because of your tradition. You see, they put tradition over transformation. Their hearts were not loving God. 
but instead they try to make their hands clean and prove that their tradition was good enough for God, and Jesus confronts them. I want you to see Luke chapter 11, verse 37 through 39. Similar situation. As he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. There it is. The ritual washing, that tradition before dinner, keeping everybody healthy. Verse 39. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and evil. I think what we want in the world is clean on the outside, but what's going on on the inside? Where's your heart at? You see, what is, a lot of times what legalism does, which is what the religious leaders were kind of caught in, is you do two things. You, you pack your plate full enough that you are busy so you can't face the reality. Because if you don't have to face the reality of who you are because you're doing so many good things, you can just say, well, I do all these good things. And then you don't have to deal with the evil things. Or the second thing legalism does is it says, look at how evil and corrupt the world is and how broken it is. And if you call them out enough, you'll see how evil and wicked they are. And surely you're not as evil and wicked as they are. And so what we do is we spot other people's unrighteousness and only spot our righteousness. And therefore we can't really look into our hearts and say, man, what's going on inside? You see, the Pharisees were good at this. As long as they could cleanse their hands, they could sit at the table with Jesus. If they can cleanse their hands, they can sit at the table with other Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders. If they can just cleanse their hands, they'll look nice and clean. And Jesus comes to them and says, man, it's not about your hands, it's about your heart. This is totally counter-cultural, Right? Our culture wants us to change our actions, which would change our heart. Now, I understand that there's a right practice that can really help you in that way. If you'll change your actions, it'll oftentimes change your heart. But Jesus has a different way of doing this. He's going to transform our hearts that it might transform our actions. And so Jesus confronts their hearts, not just their actions. I want you to see Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 49. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in a town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. Now, note down, this is a woman from town who was a sinner who was carrying perfume to, his, to this house. So it doesn't specifically tell us what sin is going on, but she has perfume. She's identified as a sinner. And most likely, in most scenarios like this, this is a sexual immorality. So this woman was bringing her life's uh, work. She was bringing what provided her work in this alabaster jar of perfume and got her work and got her money. She brings it to Jesus. All that she has and all that she is in front of Jesus. Weeping and washing she wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. You see, Jesus identifies sinners as friends, and the Pharisees identify sinners by what they do. Verse 40, Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. 
So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sin? Transformation leads to worship. But oftentimes transformation leads to enraging the Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders. Transformation for this woman caused her to bring all of who she was and all of what she had to the feet of Jesus and lay it down in front of him and worship him. I hope that as you walk away today, you will know that in your hearts, God has transformed you, not because of tradition, but because of His good mercy and grace. And it ought to lead us to worship, and hopefully will lead this, wor- this world to worship Him too. As we come away from this text, I want to give you a couple things it's saying to us. First, I believe it's saying that the law is not the gospel. I understand there are good things about the law. Paul points us to this. The law was intended to be good. I know many of you in here today might be going, man, Matt, but you're, you're, you're not preaching this part of it. And here, here's, what, here's the important thing. If I, if I tried to preach everything in the Bible every single Sunday, we would just continuously be here. Right? Like, I cannot contain every single thing that I'd like to say within the time frame that I have been given. But here's what, I, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to show you a portion of Scripture and how Jesus interacts with the perceived saints, the sinners, and the sick. And within that, the law is not the gospel for these people. When they're lowered down, when they come up to Him with a shriveled hand, and when they're stuck in a pattern of sin, Jesus doesn't come to them and say, you're a sinner, get cleaned up, wash off your hands, figure this thing out, and then when you come back to me, maybe I'll allow you to worship me. He says, friends, your sins are forgiven. The law is not the gospel because it could not save the paralytic, the shriveled hand, the demic man, or a sinner like us. And even on the Sabbath, the Sabbath could never provide rest for these people or for you and I. Only Jesus could. Not eternal life, not eternal rest, only the gospel. But what the law can do often is it can get in the way of the gospel. It can prevent people from coming to the gospel. What can happen is our rules and regulations and traditions can get in the way of people actually coming to the gospel. Because what we do is we say, if you're doing this, you're a sinner, without saying, if you're doing this, Jesus came to save you. You see, there's a different message there. One message says, because you're doing this, you're a sinner. The other message says, because you're doing this, Jesus has loved you and died for you and raised from the dead for you so that you might have life. That's a different message. And Jesus goes with the second. And I want you to simply see what Jesus goes with. I'm not trying to tell you what is practical. I'm not trying to tell you what is strategic. I'm not trying to tell you what the books might say to do. What I'm trying to show you is what Jesus did. Because if we're asking the question, what would Jesus do? Then the answer must be he would rescue sinners who come through the ceiling, who come to him with a shriveled hand, who come to him with all their sinfulness put out in front of him on display and wash his feet with their hair and perfume and worship him as they go so that the world might worship him too. 
That's what happens when Jesus transforms people. The second thing I want you to see from this passage is that your struggle might not be a biblical requirement. I mean, I'm, I'm praising the Lord that not everything that, that that paralytic had done in his life was a biblical requirement for him to be able to come to Jesus. Because I'm not sure we'd actually have this story. I'm not sure we'd have any story of healing. The paralytic, those who had uh, become over, consumed with demons, uh, the blind, the, those who could not speak because of demons inside of them, the shriveled up hand. Uh, I don't know that we've seen anybody transformed by Jesus if they had to come with biblical requirements checked off. So we've got to be careful here that our struggles don't become a biblical requirement for others. Now, how can I, why do I say that? Because why do the religious leaders, why are they so uh, uh, stuck on Jesus obeying their traditions, washing the hands and all these things, which aren't necessarily evil, and in fact are prescribed oftentimes in Scripture. But why do the Pharisees and the experts of the law want everybody to follow them? Because for the past four or five hundred years, they've been overtaken by other nations, and they've become less Jewish and more like the world. And so these Pharisees and religious leaders want to protect and make sure that everybody in this area is maintaining their Jewishness. Obey the laws, obey the ritual uh, purity laws, obey the traditions of calendar events, make sure that you're doing all the different meals that are supposed to be honored, make sure that everyone is circumcised like they ought to be. you got to make sure that you do all these things, check all these boxes, so that you can be in a right relationship, not with God, but with the country. They had a struggle that they dealt with that they made a biblical requirement for all people, including those outside of Israel. That's what's going on here. Jesus is trying to save people, and the Pharisees and religious leaders are preventing them from unbiblical requirements. Here's, I want to give you some examples of how we do this. If you struggle with, let's say for instance, if you struggle with eating too much food, that doesn't mean that Christians can't eat. Just because maybe you struggle with eating too much doesn't mean that everyone should not drink anything. Just like for the Pharisees, you know what? Maybe they needed to go through a season of purification like we see in certain passages like Hosea. The book of Hosea, look at chapter 3. We, we, sometimes we need seasons where we abstain from things. But what I can't do is take what I'm abstaining from and require you to do it because it might be something that I'm struggling with that you don't need to abstain from. Now, Paul gives us clarity here. There's times to eat and drink. There's times to uh, engage in meat eating, and there's times to engage in abstaining from certain things. He wants us to understand this. The purpose of everything that we do ought to bring glory, be to bring glory to God and draw others to do the same. So in our lives, we're living out a life that is bringing glory to Him and calling others to do that rather than taking our struggles and imposing it on others. So if you're struggling with eating too much food, don't require Christians not to eat anything. In fact, don't require the world not to eat anything. Likewise, if you struggle with sex within marriage, maybe you live an adulterous lifestyle, that doesn't mean that Christians can't have sex inside of marriage. Just because one struggles with one, uh, with one sin or temptation doesn't mean that we impose it on the entire group. Another way to say this was is, is if you struggle with anger, that doesn't mean that Christians can't have righteous anger. 
James tells us to be slow to this anger. Jesus shows a model of what this anger looks like. If you struggle with anger, that doesn't mean that no Christians can have righteous anger. The Pharisees and Sadducees miss what Jesus is doing. He's bringing transformation, not tradition, not obedience to these uh, to these rules and regulations that are extra and put on top of the gospel. Another way to say this would be is if you struggle with drinking too much alcohol, that doesn't mean that Christians can't have a self-controlled drink. This is something we've got to come to. All these different questions, too much food, sex outside of marriage, drinking too much alcohol, struggling with anger, all of these different things. We have to come to this humbly and say, I can't impose what's going on in my life on others to the point where it prevents them from getting to the gospel. I can't tell you how many times I've had people outside of the church, outside of Christianity, tell me, man, I can't be a Christian because y'all require this. And I go, man, no, we don't. That's not a rule. It's not, a regu- it's not even a law. Like, that's not even something that we require you to do. I can't come to church because if, I literally have heard somebody tell me, I can't come to church because if I walk inside the doors, I'll burn up. And, and you see what happened. We set up so many laws, rules, and regulations. We created such a barrier that can't even step inside the doors because they don't obey all these different things. Well, thank God that none of us had to live that way too. What if you could never step in in front of Jesus? What if you could never come to Jesus unless you obeyed every single law and rule and regulation? We can't let our struggles, traditions, rituals, or anything that we have prevent people from coming to Jesus. Our biblical requirements might be getting in the way of others coming to Jesus. I think this is exactly what happens in each one of these passages. The Sabbath, which was meant for good for us, was used to block the needy from the gospel. Did y'all see that? The Sabbath was going... The Sabbath. Hear that. The Sabbath was going to block a shriveled man's hand from being healed and ultimately God allowing that to be the way which he would work grace in this man's life. The Sabbath was created for rest. It was created to lead people to rest and eternal life in Jesus. It's like the shalom, that peace that we ought to have. But the gospel leads us to that eternal rest, a rest that we could never find on this earth. And the religious leaders used what was meant for rest to prevent rest from those who are lost and broken. You see, Jesus interacts with the perceived saints differently than he does the sick and the sinners. So I hope that you and I will come humbly to this text and ask ourselves the question, are we like the humble sinners being uh, uh, lowered down from the roof? Or are we like these religious leaders who are shouting out, don't, you know, where, who taught you? Who trained you? Where's your authority from? Stop this. This man can't be healed on Sabbath. Where are we in this narrative? I, uh, I want to challenge you as you walk away from this on what we can do because of these passages. I hope that you will, with me, elevate Jesus over traditions. Elevate Jesus over tradition and rules and laws and regulations and all these different things. Would you elevate Jesus over all? This means that we've got to point people to Jesus, not towards our rules and regulations. 
a really practical way to say this, and this really digs in deep a little bit, presses into our lives, is are you more concerned with people looking like Jesus or are you more concerned with people looking like rules and regulations? Another way to say this is, do you want your husband or wife to look more like Jesus or do you want them to look more like you want them to act? Y'all, this is difficult, and I really think we should flesh these things out. Think about it. Would you rather somebody act more like you want their personality to be, their communication style to be, how they emote? Would you like them to be more like what you want, or would you like them to be more like what Jesus looks like? As we press into that for our, husband, for our husbands and wives, or as we press into that for our children, ask this question, are you raising kids who follow Jesus or obey your rules? Now, I understand, parents, and I understand questions. And again, I don't have the time to flesh out every single thing. I'm trying to focus in on the gospel. But look at this. And, and our kids' ministry is the same way. Are you, do you want your children to pursue Jesus and love Jesus, or do you want them to obey the laws of the Bible? And we've got to be really careful here, because if we raise up people who are just checking off the boxes to say, well, I don't do this, and I follow the Ten Commandments, and I do all these different things, but they don't love Jesus and pursue after Jesus, then all we have done is create more religious leaders, tax uh, um, law experts, rather than raising up people who love Jesus. I hope that as you flesh that out for your own life, you'll look at your friendships and your co-workers and maybe other religious leaders that you know and even myself, and we can all ask the question, which we talked about last week, we can come to it humbly and ask the question, what am I doing and how am I speaking to those around me which is preventing them from coming to the gospel message of Jesus Christ? And I want to remind you, all of these things can be good and can be used for good. There are good traditions, there are good laws, there are good things in this. But when we pursue traditions in the law more than we pursue tradition, we are always going to miss Jesus. It's, a, it's something we've said often at this church, which is we want to marry the mission, not the methods. But oftentimes we marry the uh, methods, not the mission. And if that's the case, then we've got to bluntly come to this and say then we need to divorce unnecessary traditions in a different culture. If there are unnecessary traditions that we've built up, whether obedience to the law or obedience to certain ways to look or talk or act inside of the church, if there are unnecessary traditions that we've built up, we have to recognize that maybe those traditions aren't effective at bringing people to glorify God in this culture. I'll give you an example of this. This is a really, uh, trying to bring this in, uh, and I forgot, totally forgot the name of this, but when I was a child, I was afraid of quicksand. Anybody else? Raise your hand if you're afraid of quicksand. I need to know that somebody else was, okay, thank you. Three services, nobody was afraid of quicksand except for me, and I was getting really self-conscious about my fears. Uh, I'm serious. Last service, I said it too. I'm like, nobody else is afraid of this. I, I'm, anyways. Um, <laughs> unnecessary traditions would be bring, like bringing a, 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 a set of flippers into a quicksand. Like, I don't think it's going to be helpful. <laughs> I don't know that. And I'm wondering if anybody is going to correct me. I have not yet had somebody correct me, but I probably will receive an email. I just don't think they would be effective. It seems like it would bog you down. Y'all feeling me? Okay. 
Another way that we could do this, practical things, right? Like, I'm just trying to show you examples of this. It'd be like a Southerner. I can say this because I'm from the South. You cannot say this, okay? You're Northerners, okay? No offense. Uh, but uh, I just raised the tension so high right now. Uh, Southerners can take their cut-off, you know, shirts and cut-off jeans. That's what they, you know, that's what we wear. Holy jeans. I don't wear them up here. I don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> but it's what we wear down south, okay? And, uh, but imagine a Southerner taking their holy jeans, cut-off jeans, cut-off shirts, and going to Alaska and trying to live. It doesn't work. You know, I, the only person I heard say anything was my other Southern friend in here. Uh, Alabamian. Uh, anyways, so you're looking at different things in your life that, you, that are not effective in our culture. Things that we've built up that really aren't even effective at bringing people to worship King Jesus. Anybody familiar with Jim Thorpe, famous running back from the 1920s? i got to clarify because you can't say 20s anymore because we're in the 2020s, right? Jim Thorpe was a famous uh, uh, running back. He played for the New York Giants at one point. And uh, when, they, when they ran, uh, if you know anything about football, you wear a helmet, right? They would wear helmets, but they were built out of leather back then because they were trying to prevent ears from being ripped off, right? So it was like protection for your ears alone. They didn't protect the head. I don't know what they were thinking there, uh, but they weren't trying to protect your head. They were just trying to protect your ears, okay? So they had straps over your ears. Um, can you imagine Jim Thorpe, fast, ran track, played baseball, was in the Olympics until he got uh, kicked out of that, and then played football super fast. Can you imagine him in 2020s trying to play football with his leather hat? Like, that's what he was wearing, a leather hat on his head, trying to play football. He would be out in the first minute of play. Knocked out, right? Concussion. Sometimes we marry methods instead of the mission. Sometimes what we want to do is we want to have traditions and laws and rules and regulations rather than seeing people's lives transformed. We've got to remember that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That Jesus came for the unhealthy, not the healthy. That Jesus came, and you ask the question, what would Jesus do? The answer is, he would rescue sinners. That's first and foremost. I understand there's so much after that. I understand that we're all on a journey to pursue after Jesus Christ, but I'm asking the question, what did Jesus do first? And he wanted to show the saints, the perceived saints, what he would do. And what he would do is he would look at sick, the sick and the sinners, and he would say, friend, your sins are forgiven. So church, I'm asking you this question. When you look at our world, and when you look at the sick and the sinners, do you see them and say, here's the things you need to obey, here's what you need to look like, here's what I want for you, and all these different things? Because the problem is, sometimes we might say, hey, if you'll change this about what you do, your life will be a lot better. But that's exactly what the religious leaders were doing. Rather than that, what we need to do is show them Jesus. Because Jesus transforms lives. So I hope that we do not let tradition get in the way of the gospel. In all things. Whatever that is. And whatever it is for your life and for your family. Anything that's been built up or your church or anything... In, in religious conversations, it's been built up to say, if you don't meet this, then you cannot be transformed by the gospel. You cannot meet with Jesus. I can only imagine. Can you guys imagine this with me as the band comes forward? I'm just going to give you a quick illustration. Can you imagine? We saw it in the video. It's super helpful for me to see things. I sometimes learn that way. Can you imagine the disciples, like all of them just standing out in front of, of the house? And here comes this paralytic being carried on the stretcher. 
And the disciples are all in front of the house, and they're just like, mm, can't come in here. You're not allowed in here. Jesus doesn't associate with you kind of people. You're sick. Clearly you're a sinner. Jesus doesn't associate with you. But as long as you go give this amount of money and you clean up this thing in your life and your family would look a little bit cleaner, also you probably should wash your hands before you come in there. As long as you do all these different things then you can come in there and meet with Jesus. Can you imagine if the disciples had done that? First of all, I know what Jesus would have said to them, right? But second, how many people would actually make it to Jesus? I know I wouldn't, and I don't know about you, but I know I wouldn't. And I can humbly confess to you that I, there's no way, way I'd ever make it to Jesus if there was all those rules and regulations in front of him. The only way I made it to Jesus was because he came to me. So I, I just want to ask you as a church to pray through this and think through this humbly. What are we expecting of the world? Are we expecting the world and the brokenness in the culture? And maybe if you see things outside of this uh, church or inside this church, or you see just brokenness in the world, and you're like, man, this is just so corrupt. Are you expecting them to change? Are you expecting this church world to change without the transformation that comes from Jesus Christ? That's literally like, that's like insanity. We've spent hundreds and thousands of years trying to change. It doesn't happen. The definition of sanity is trying to do the same thing and expecting different results. It's never going to work. The only way that transformation takes place is because Jesus brings transformation. If we're crying out to a world, be transformed without showing the world Jesus, how will they ever be transformed? So I hope that we as a church will take the only news that is good that Jesus Christ came to us when we couldn't come to him. So as we close, I've got three quick gospel responses for you. First, would you humbly evaluate relationships in your life and just ask the question, have I put up any barriers between them and the gospel? Second, would you evaluate religious traditions in your own life that you've built up for you that prevent you from being able to access the gospel and access Jesus? Say, man, I've done all these things or I've struggled with this currently or I've messed up in this current way or I just don't meet up to these standards within the church world or I don't serve enough in this different way or anything that you've built up that just puts you in a place where you cannot access Jesus. And would you humbly look at anything in your life that needs to change and just ask Jesus, will you transform this in my life? I know, I know there's brokenness in this world. We've talked about this a lot. But what I want to show you is, what would Jesus do in the midst of brokenness? He'd save sinners. He'd rescue them, like you and like me. That's what Jesus would do. I'm going to pray for you. And as you close your eyes, I want to bring you to this as we pray. I've had wonderful conversations with a lot of people in this church about the things going on in our culture today. And I just want to pray for you, and I want to pray for our world. And I just want to pray that God would help us to see His Word and not the words of this world. So that's what I'm going to pray specifically for you. God, I I pray that you would help us to see how you interacted with a broken world. I pray, God, that you would help us to see how we should speak to those who are sick and those who are sinners just like us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to engage the world the way that your son did.
speak with that boldness and the authority that he has passed down to us of the gospel message unleashing in a world that is broken and transforming lives. I pray, Father, that when transformation takes place in our own lives, that the world will see and bring glory to you. Father, I pray that if there's anybody in this room right now who's never seen the transformation that only you can give, that they will come like the humble paralytic, the humble man with a shriveled hand, the humble girl who's been stuck in sin and bring before your son everything they are and everything they have to offer to you in worship. I pray, God, that you would transform their lives and their hearts, that you would change them from where they are to where you have for them, take them from death into life and show them the freedom and the forgiveness that comes through your son's mercy. I pray, God, you would transform their lives. So, Father, in this time, would you move? We praise you. In your son's name, amen. You have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us, and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.